This episode is about a lot of things. It's about Bufu, Adrian Marie Brown, Emergent Strategy. It's about utopia. It's about being artists and organizers no matter how much we resist those labels. It's kind of about our entire lives for the last year. And it's about where we are right now, spending two weeks north of the Bay Area on a sea ranch called This Will Take Time. We're uh, we're on we're up on Windy Hollow Road in Point Arena, looking out the windows. As far as you can see, there aren't there are no other signs of life, so we feel there's an isolation here that's happening. In some ways, it feels like we've been here for like a second. In some ways, it feels like we've been here for months. Like time doesn't exist, and it functions in like really weird ways. It like stretches and contracts in like ways that are strange and unusual. Yesterday we were filming, you had mentioned, you had mentioned like feeling like the sun wasn't going to go down, but just like the day kept going on and on and on. The sun like stayed up for us to like get the shot and then was like, okay, I'm out. (laughs) It is easy to feel like the world is moving in concert with our creative pursuits (laughs) while we're in this um, bubble the fog rolls in like multiple times during the day. I also was thinking about how like I once went to Joshua Tree, the desert for like a couple months and also like for like a big writing project and how like both the desert and like the the forest that we're in now are like landscapes you can kind of easily project things onto in a way and so it's like it's really useful for like both getting creative work done but also like the particular work that we're here to do is like a lot of it has to do with you know, like utopic visions of the future or like kind of like... One of the projects that we're working on here is a radio drama based on an epic short story written by our friend Kamala about the femphone, which is a feminist operating system. And in the world where the femphone exists, it's not just a phone, but it like helps these uh, this group of friends who are all queer femmes figure their shit out and also like move through the world yeah. more easily. Thinking about silence, about stillness, about slow time and fuller hours, the space to find your natural rhythm, a full quiet house, femme sensibilities, boundaries asserted gently, soft contact, intensity, some distance from the city, how it feels, how whole, how easy, how natural, how real, how satisfying. I just like that also like in this utopia, our primary work is intellectual and creative and yet we don't starve. <laughs> like we still have food and a roof over our heads. Imagine that. <laughs> hey, it's NK. This is Phoebe. This is Bitch Face, obviously. So another thing we're tapping into on this residency is Bitch Face is sort of building its collective. Like For sure. we're expanding from like just being a podcast. We're living in this house with our collaborator Kamala and some other dyke poets. Yeah. It's reminding me of a year ago when we accidentally formed our first collective, Intersectionality Now. <laughs> oh, I know. Our short-lived but... Beloved collective. Yeah. With our friend Coco. Yeah, we threw this little, like, the intersectional brunch before the Women's March. We are joining the Women's March Los Angeles to insist that mainstream feminism embrace a more inclusive and more radical feminism. Intersectionality Now. We thought like maybe 30 people would come and it turned out to be a lot more. It than blew that. up. Yeah, it blew up. 
We wound up getting this residency at this feminist art space in LA called the Women's Center for Creative Work. We didn't really think we'd get it, so then we had to come up with 12 weeks of programs about feminist coalition building. One of the only like models that we were all super excited about was this event that happened in New York that Coco told us about called Scamming the Patriarchy, which was at the New Museum, but it was run by a bunch of different collectives in New York, and one of them was Bufu. It turns out Bufu was actually going to be in L.A. to document the 25th anniversary of the L.A. uprisings for their documentary project. So they wound up kicking it. <laughs> they wound up sleeping on my floor, my living room floor. And then a couple months later when we were in New York, we hit them up. And they were deep into the planning of a huge project. 30 straight days of programming, all five boroughs, an event called Us. And we crashed one of their final planning meetings. Like presence economically in Ethiopia and a lot of the shit. Ooh, people brought food to the meeting. Sorry, I'm excited about that. What? Oh, ham. Yo, Leslie, good looking out. Um, okay, sorry, we're gonna eat soon. I'm Bufu, bias for us. Bufu is a collaborative living archive centered around pan-black and pan-Asian cultural and political relationships. Hi, my name's Nagita Fessa. She, her pronouns, I'm single as of this interview, post-Pride 2017. <laughs> I'm a Cancer, um, which probably, if you've met me, makes sense. But I also have a Virgo moon and Virgo rising, which means I'm neurotic and emotional. Our goal is to facilitate a global conversation on the relationship between Black and Asian diasporas with an emphasis on building solidarity, decentering whiteness, and resurfacing our deeply interconnected and complicated histories. And then Catherine is a Scorpio, and then Jasmine's a Gemini, so watch the fuck out. <laughs> we attempt to achieve this through collaborative programming, visual archives, and through building long-term partnerships with collectives, organizations, and individuals. And then Sonia's a Virgo, thank God, because she helps us get things done. We, the founders of this project, are a collective of queer, femme and non-binary, black and East Asian artists and organizers. Bufu is illegible because we don't have to be legible and we can't be. That was Sige. Here's Jasmine. We did not like bust our asses to do programming so you could talk about what we're wearing. And Kat. But like how do we view each other as people that are possible of giving each other care? And Sonia. I have all this language but like I don't know how to say certain things in Korean like in my own language. I mean, we talked about, did you talk about how we came together? No. Um, really, really briefly, because it's like kind of a lot. Um, we all did, well, not all of us, but me and Kat and June, who's now passed away and one of our core members, um, did a lot of organizing on campus. Um, June headed up the um, API Collective, and I was heading up the Students of the African Diaspora um, club on campus and so we had done a lot of different types of programming with each other um doing like across poc community work and uh june helped put together one one screen that kind of was like really central to kind of how we all came together which was um it was the screen a screening of when mountains take wing um and it was really really dope um it was a really dope doc 
The dog is a series of conversations between Angela Davis, who needs no introduction, and the Japanese-American activist Yuri Kochiyama. Yuri Kochiyama's family was interned during World War II, and later she was tied with Malcolm X. She was an advocate for black separatism, the anti-war movement, Maoist revolution, reparations for Japanese-American internees, and the rights of political prisoners. Right. Uh, we have to legitimize the role of the organizer. Oh, yeah. Which it's means also legitimizing work that, um, that women... Yeah, women have done. And like, no, the and work that you've done. Well, I, I mean, we've been I talking know. about that. We've been talking know, about how important that work is. And without, yeah. without the initiative that you took, we couldn't talk about Malcolm's important relationship mm-hmm. uh, with Asians and Asian Americans. Uh, and afterwards, we had this community conversation with um, Black and Asian folks, talking about just like our communities and like, yeah, how we how we are together and work together. And it was a really, honestly, the, the conversation was really awkward um, and painful, and we did not really know how best to facilitate it. And they were having trouble like talking to each other, so they were like talking at us and like using very different words and like not really. There was like a like kind of like this tension of like being able to read each other in the space in and in like and their ex- and experiences and we were just like I remember just like turning to each other and being like I don't fucking know what to do like how are we supposed to do this and so that tension was something that we were thinking about at the start of this and also at the same time like jazz is like always plugged into super lit shit that I don't I'm 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 just late to everything I'm like an old auntie like I'm just kind of lame in a lot of ways and so she brings cool things into our lives and so she heard and saw the video Ichima which was like this like um these like east asian rappers who were doing a send-up of i think it, i can't remember what the song there was like i can't remember the bass song but it's like it was like it's like a rap song basically and it's like it's like ichima underwater squat anyways you should look it up because i'm fucking it up Nicole's dancing over here. Um, I love this track. I mean, this music does make me want to turn up. What CK was talking about is Keith Ape, who's a Korean rapper, and the song is Ichima, which is a pretty direct ripoff of the 2014 ATL Trap-style song, You Guessed It, by OG Mako. We did watch this video, and our reactions were all over the place. I mean, first of all, Keith Ape is wearing a grill. His friend in the video has, like, cornrows in. There's this, like, abstract mural of a watermelon. I mean, it seems like in, in the absence of actual Black people, being in the room, they just sort of tried to import these like random aspects of black culture to sort of suggest and own blackness. To me, it was immediately clear like what Bufu, what CK was talking about when they looked at it. A persona like Keith Ape like completely encapsulates the central question in all of Bufu's work. And I mean, I do feel like watching this video, there's like two responses you could have. You could immediately be like, this is fucked up because it's obviously like someone performing blackness who's not black. But then I feel like, and what Bufu's getting at is you can kind of interrogate it more and ask like, what the, f- what the fuck is happening here? Why does this exist? Like, what is happening? Right. Less so than just like, this is wrong. And I feel like if it were like an, a white American rapper, it would be easy to condemn it to cultural appropriation because obviously we know like, we know the entire history of the way that like, <laughs> 
white musicians and their relationship to like musicians of color, particularly black people. But like the fact that this is not only outside of like the American black white binary, but it's it like involves context. this whole global situation. When we first watched this, you were mentioning you're like it feels like because of that reason that he's it is more like appreciation versus appropriation. But like does does that argument ever hold up? Like we did we we looked into it a little bit because I feel like there's a lot of like examples of orientalism and hip hop but something that came up to me was Kung Fu Kenny Kendrick Lamar and so like um, which reminded you also of like Wu-Tang I mean, the first thing I thought of yeah with regards to hip hop and orientalism for me is yeah Wu-Tang and then we watched this like complex video about why there's a lot of Kung Fu references in early hip hop which was that like these kung fu films were played in like certain types of theaters in New York that like hip hop like b-boys and stuff like grew up going to these theaters and watching these movies and and there's like a thing about the discipline and like the process of kung fu that like really appealed to people making hip hop music okay that might that might that might have been the case but i think when we're talking about blackness like you can't really have a serious conversation about cultural exchange when like theft of black culture is so rampant. This video, this conversation about this video, all of Bufu's work is like, does exist outside of, like it's intentionally international, global, diasporic. And so it really complicates all these questions that like, yeah, like the question of like the ways that power flows or who has the power, who's profiting, all that stuff gets like way more messy. And they're just like all about being in the middle of that mess. Anyway, so we were like really interested in like what was happening there. Like in the song, they're like, they do a lot of different things where we're like, that's challenging and interesting and like trying to figure out the differences between like cultural appropriation and like cultural exchange and then also like where, like why is there this invested interest culturally um, in each other and like where is that coming from politically and like consuming each other through white supremacy. So like all these different questions were coming up at the same time as like this other meeting of, of like our black and Asian bodies. The documentary is, was kind of the impetus <laughs> for the, for Bufu. What's cool about Bufu is that they're their politics inform even the way that they approach filmmaking, like their sense of accountability to certain marginalized communities. They weren't really interested in doing what's like conventional for documentary filmmakers, which is like parachuting into communities, filming a community, and then taking that footage somewhere else. It was like, we're making this documentary with you and for you, for you to watch afterwards. Yeah, they lost interest in making something that had to be approved by the film industry or like go through any of the art world or establishment gatekeepers. So from the jump, we were like, okay, we're going to make a feature-length film. Um, and we didn't necessarily identify as a collective then, but more like a multimedia project. Um, and programming was always something that was like an important component of that, um, like a physical manifestation of the conversations that we're having on film. There is power in being invited into or taking up space in a place like Sundance or Cannes or South by Southwest. But at the same time, like... How useful yeah. is that? And how much of our audience has access to those spaces in the first place? Like, it's like taking something um, and like looking at something from the outside in, and then people can consume that in a dark theater um, without actually like 
questioning their own beliefs or where they fit into the framework. So I think that's also why like the programming that we do is really crucial to the way that the documentary will live um, because we're trying to have this conversation as many different ways as possible and we don't want uh, the end project to be something that's consumed super passively and then you can like turn off and like be like okay I now understand the breadth of black and Asian cultural and political contact. The whole month of us was inspired by uh, what we did at Scamming the Patriarchy and like conversations that we had with other collectives is like damn wouldn't this be so cool if we had like complete autonomy and if we were like really in control and if it wasn't just one day and if it wasn't just geared to like teenagers but to like anyone who needed it. Currently, we're in the process of constructing an interactive documentary web series with footage from Korea, Japan, Ethiopia, Jamaica, China, and the United States. This evolving archive lives online, on a screen, in an exhibition, in a journal, with endless possibilities for growth. I think, honestly, I think us transforming from a documentary, like, collaborative project to a collective was completely just a scam for resources um like it it helped us be legible in a different type of way like i think we didn't we weren't like oh the ethos of a collective that's what we need to be or like no we want to work together and we want to be able to do more shit in different types of way and like bend and move and do whatever okay so even though they didn't necessarily set out with the ethos of a collective clearly collectivity and collective care is at the heart of everything that they're doing and what does that mean to you it means that there's clearly just like a, like a sense of responsibility for each other that was like really palpable and like sweet. <laughs> it was sweet. You know. There was like so much support being offered for the members of Bufu who have been, had clearly been like tirelessly working on this. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of attention to like what do they need personally even. It was like Sige's birthday and everyone like put money together to like send her to, her to the spa, spa which yeah. was great. Yeah. When we were organizing or like I was going to a lot of organizing meetings and spaces during our residency as I know. And I I would say also like I feel like the way that they run things, it does seem very like it's very like emotionally centered. And it is about building relationships with the people in the room first and foremost. Whereas like sometimes I feel like it's like the conversation centers around something happening outside the room and isn't about the people in the room and their relationships to each other. Their little collective does that. And then they clearly reverberates throughout like the communities that they work with. Right. Because there were these there were some people in the room that I feel like we could tell from the beginning of the meeting that like they just had a kind of authority to them of like they know what's up with Bufu. They know what to do. They've been down this road before. And like I think their presence like was really reassuring to Bufu and a lot of like newer people that were in the room. Yeah. They turned out to be the two Leos in another New York City based collective, the Yellow Jackets. Here's Parisa. I guess Yellow Jackets Collective was originally kind of founded by Michelle and another collective member, Esther, born out of the anger and anxiety of being queer Asian American and not really having spaces to perform anger and still be authentic um, or to actually exercise anger and use it in a politically useful way. And Michelle. I think um, people have so much language to talk about accountability and kind of like how to love someone well when it comes to like partnerships, like on an individual level. But Bufu has definitely taught me about what it means to love like well collectively and as a community, um, what that kind of care even looks like. But I think a collective basically in theory is like, it's just a different, it's like it's just a different way of organizing. It's just like trying to decentralize power as much as possible and do horizontally organized shit. And yeah, I think when you talk about like 
our collaborative work. We operate very much within like a family structure and a kinship structure. So just thinking about like femme-centered spaces and how that affects our politics and the way that we activate. There is not really a model for a lot of the things that we want to do, that even the models of community organizing and grassroots organizing are really masculinated and rooted in state formations, which is something that we're trying to work against. Um, just because I think especially um, with like so many institutions and nonprofits being defunded and also also already being fucked up to begin with there's been like a huge wave of people starting collectives I mean collectives have always been a thing but I'm like I'm noticing now a lot more people organizing in that specific way and like coming up with new strategies for how to organize and I think we are really interested in a different type of care with each other like we you know we do check-ins we like have a different type of intimacy with each other it's not just about the work it's about how, like how do we move like how are we all doing like when we get funds like a lot of it will go of course to the work but also some of it will go to like you know like so and so has an emergency we have to make sure that they're good so like let's give whatever booth money is to that situation mm, i mean i think checking in is literally like hey like how are you feeling so it's like making space for someone to just like have their voice heard just like holding a container for people to be seen, I think is really important. Seen and heard. And then and then if you have capacity, being able to su like support and show care in like specific ways that people need. I think a lot of what we are founded into is this idea of like, if you're asking marginalized people to put their bodies on the line for this supposed utopic future in which we are safe and happy and at the center of our lives and of the lives of the society that we've chosen to live in. Like, who is taking care of us afterwards, right? Like, who feeds you after you protest, right? Basically, if you're not taking care of, like, your basic things, you're not going to have any energy to hold space for other people. Um, I feel like trust is something that I actually, like, think about a lot with the Yellow Jackets and Bufu now is this idea of, like, you know, theoretically, if you have the same politics, you should be able to march in the same lines and you should be able to hold the same spaces. But um, if you don't love and trust and care like on an individual level about the people that you're working with it's actually incredibly hard to remain unendingly vulnerable which is like what you need to do if you are organizing and activating and saying that you're out here for justice and a utopic future for people of color and queer folks I mean, we talk about Bufu as our midwives a lot. I think they like birthed us in a very real way. We weren't really a collective before we met them. Um, and I think at the end of the day, like we owe Bufu our, like our political collective lives and also just our queer, any, anything. We, they are our family. That's kind of how it works. Fridays, it's gonna be potlucks, community potlucks, and um, an emergent strategy reading group. Um, At the beginning of this episode, we mentioned the idea of emergence, which comes from a book by Adrienne Marie Brown called Emergent Strategy. Adrienne is a writer. She's a podcaster. She makes a podcast with her sister called How to Survive the End of the World, and she's a pleasure activist based in Detroit. Emergence is a way of organizing, but it's based on 
pattern seen in nature. Well, it's about how like many small movements in this case, we're talking about organizing. So we're talking about people. So like small interactions between two people become big, slightly bigger interactions between four people becomes bigger interactions among 100 people become like wide scale movements. So it's like this way of movement building that isn't based on like sort of like a critical mass in the way that maybe when you think of like Occupy or something, it's sort of like you need like a million people to be camping in Zuccotti Park. This is like, no, like you need like 10 people in a room to care about each other and then like work towards a utopic future together. Or that like the Occupy movement, what you see in mass is going to be a reflection of their individual relationships. Yeah, for sure. We first we first read Emergent Strategy because Bufu recommended it to us. They had read At it. Allied Media Conference. Right. So they're, they are students of Emergent Strategy. I feel like Emergence is about spreading a set of values through many, many small interactions versus like a sort of top-down way of doing it. It's very accessible. Like it's transmitted Mm -hmm. in like the ways that you ask someone how they are, like the patience you have, the listening that you give to others around you, um, those kind of like smaller ways that then like form the values in a way that like you don't necessarily have to write them down and Mm -hmm. have like them on a list. Right, because you're living them. Right. Yeah. I love that. It's just like a way more humanistic approach. Talking about emergence in this way, it just like to me is so clear, like how great, what a great strategy this is for like long-term coalition building. Because when you're talking about like, okay, like you and I work on like our bond, like we're checking with each other, we're caring for each other. I know what your particular needs are as a human. Like I'm not really seeing you as, I feel like it's also a way to sort of avoid getting bogged down in like sort of identity politics and being like, you're a person, like what are your, what are your privileges? Sure. But like also like, like what are your privileges, but also like what are the things you're struggling with? And like, how can I help you with that? And vice versa. So now you and I have a bond, we have a coalition. Now the four of us have that. And again, like it just spreads and spreads. The really important thing to know about emergent strategy is that it's like, you know, it's heavily informed by the work of Octavia Butler, the Afrofuturist writers. And it's a, it's like a future project. You know, it's a, it's about like the future. It's about building a future together. It's not about like necessarily even responding to anything that's happening immediately. It is about responding to that because you have to, but like the overall, it's kind of like we're building relationships because like we need to build a new world together. So... The other important question that Emergent Strategy asks is, are you living in someone else's imagination? We are in an imagination battle right now. Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown and Renisha McBride and all of them are dead because in some white imagination they were dangerous. And that imagination is so respected that those who would kill based on an imagined racialized fear of black people are rarely held accountable. Imagination has people think that they can go from poverty to millionaire as part of a shared American dream. Imagination turns brown bombers into terrorists and white bombers into mentally ill victims. Imagination gives us borders and gives us superiority and gives us race. We have to imagine beyond those fears. We have to ideate together. The poverty that results Ooh, in our system wow. allows I know. imagining. I mean... Yeah, that just takes like this idea. I feel like we're thinking about like the we because we are in the future. We're like, oh, like what can we imagine? But like thinking about it in the in the present and the past is like thinking about how fucking dangerous the white imagination has been and continues to be. I don't know. I love it's I love this as like a way of just sort of like moving through the world and the now of like thinking of the future. And also just like this whole project of being like this question of like whose imagination was super powerful like, and interesting. And I do feel like we're starting. I, I think there are there is evidence that on this like macro 
imagined future way that like things are changing when it comes to like sexual harassment and assault. Mm-hmm. Like I do think like believing women do- like does this work. Yeah, it's like you're talking about like shifting narratives. You're talking about like shifting paradigms, and it's right. sort of like it is just sort of like. I mean, it's kind of like when we used to talk about like queering your mind. It's like it's just sort of you can see the world this way or you can choose to see the world in a different way right. and you can or, act accordingly. Or monogamy or something. It's right. Like you yeah, which is part of that. These. Yeah. I think in a lot of people, I feel like there's like times of your life where it's appropriate and encouraged to like be questioning things, be questioning authority, be questioning these like dominant narratives. And for a lot of people, like at some point it stops. And I like love what I love about like us, this project, our friends is like, we're constantly being like, again, like, I don't know what, like what's actually happening. Is this how I want it to be happening? Can it be happening some other way? Can we be doing something differently? I mean, the project, part of the project we've been working on at our residency at This Will Take Time is like working on this project with Kamala, our collaborator. It's sort of like this kind of like near future time set in Oakland. It's a world that like potentially could exist. It's a world where like people's probably, you know, like where we're not dealing with like the condi- like capitalism. We're not dealing with like heteronormativity. Um, it feels totally possible and it's like really significant and where, like, to like public spaces are sort of like mediated in a different way. Yeah. And that like femme people have like a lot more power in for, like, the yeah. public realm. Mm-hmm. And like what does that do for you to be able to just to, to read about these characters to like sort of see how they live their life? The thing too then that what feels like stumbling into Bufu's world almost felt like opening up like a really incredible work of science fiction was that like their their world that they've built, the the events that they have and the spaces and the people and everyone in it and what they're talking about and the way they're loving each other like feels f- like futuristic in itself in some way. This is what it's like to live in Bufu's imagination. Everyone around you is queer and black and brown. Community guidelines reflect the needs of the most vulnerable. When an art institution gives you money, you redistribute it to someone in your community who needs rent. Security at your events doesn't fuck with turfs or white supremacy, but your strategy for dealing with those things won't replicate the state or involve the police. And a write-up in The New Yorker or any mainstream media outlet will probably be met with indifference and the worries and possibility that random white people might start showing up to your events. We're in an imagination battle right now. Emergence is asking us to think beyond competition, beyond binaries, beyond linear short-term outcomes. In your radical imagination, you decide what the world would look like or feel like if power was distributed differently. If you can imagine utopia, then you can also help create it. In light of everything that has happened with this, like, with our fucking president and everything that's just happening in general, it's more useful to kind of make that a wider conversation and just give people as many skills and resources as possible to do the type of work that they think would be useful in creating the world that they want to exist in. Okay, back to us. After our trip to New York, I now disbanded. That particular experiment in collective organizing was over. The three of us went on different paths, and Bitchface leaned hard into making propaganda for queer feminist misandrists. Adrienne Marie Brown actually named how we think of this project when she talked about transformative media. But for those of us who are in a disenfranchised or disempowered communities, it's about transformative media, being able to actually send messages in a way that changes the way people perceive stuff and helps to empower our communities. I was really excited when I heard Adrienne say that because I do feel like 
one of the reasons that we make this podcast like is to give listeners, give someone, whoever's listening, like a space to imagine different worlds, like different possibilities, like different narratives for themselves, different ways of like knowing and relating to each other. I do feel like we kind of like in our world, like when we're recording, it's as if like bitch face is on the nightly news, you know, like, th- <laughs> like that is the world is that like, we are talking about like the important things of, of the day. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I do hope that listeners do kind of like get, let themselves get lost in that world. Yeah. It's like we're letting every time we make an episode and this, I think is true with every episode we make, it's like more and more true that like we are like letting you into like our little imagined utopia, like the place that we think about and play in all the time. We want to like transmit that through this project somehow. And like, I want, I want people to contribute to that world. We want to hear like, what could we be reading? What are we getting wrong? How can you like expand, um, expand this world? Like, how can you help us sharpen our radical weaponry? <laughs> I was just like, literally just thought like, our, <laughs> so bad. I was like, our clits get hard for, <laughs> for, for radical queer theory. <laughs> Cool. If you have any thoughts about this episode, call 406-28-BITCH and tell us about it. Bye. Sige, Jasmine, Kat, and Sonia of Bufu for their work and for letting us tell their story. And thank you to Parisa and Michelle of the Yellow Jackets Collective for being a part of it. Shout out to Ben and Tara from This Will Take Time and Samantha from Small Press Traffic for giving us the time and space to work on this episode and a bunch of other things you're going to hear someday. One of the beats you heard on this episode is by Kitty Crimes. And the song you're listening to now is The Twilight Zone by the Uhuruverse. Uhuru is part of a rad LA-based collective, Snatch Power. Snatch! Bitchface is produced by NK and me, Phoebe. 
And this episode was mastered by Anna Arbalis. Love us, be patient with us, follow us on Instagram, and call 406-28-BITCH to leave your complaints, your affirmations, and confessions. Oh, and last thing, we do listen to all of your voicemails, but sometimes it takes us a while to respond, so bear with us. And sometimes we hear a voicemail and feel totally and completely unprepared and unqualified to respond. Both these things were at play with a voicemail we got a while back from a listener, you know who you are, who was expressing a lot of frustration and sadness from her relationship with her father. So NK and I listened and thought about it a lot, but when we didn't really have a productive response, we reached out to NK's one and only sister, our dear, dear friend, and our best and brightest day one fan. You've probably heard of her. Her name's Ashley Kelly. She's got an MSW, and she's making her bitch face debut as the bitch face university dean of decolonized love. Her advice doesn't always come for free, but here's her esteemed take. We hope there's a little something for all of you in it. So as I was listening to you speak, um, I was just really struck by the idea of wanting to have a, quote, normal conversation with a white cis hetero man, even though he's your father. Um, I guess I just, I really just hope that you know that it's okay if you need to make space from your father. It's okay if you need to protect yourself. Um, and I'm totally serious when I say there's a crisis in the white male community. There are just, there's just such a long history of trauma and privilege, right? That lets people get away with being a certain kind of way emotionally. And I imagine that you're going to keep finding these frustrating experiences as long as you're sort of doing this work in service of somebody else um if you don't have the kind of relationship with your dad where you can't ask him to sort of join you in this growing process where he's getting his own support and you're getting your support and then you can sort of meet in the middle um it's really okay if you need to have a different kind of relationship with him it's okay to take space it's okay to ask for a new boundary or to assert a new boundary it's also okay to just have no relationship if you're consistently feeling hurt and frustrated and depleted by interactions. I will always say to anybody who's going through anything just living that a therapist, if you have the time, money, and resources to get a therapist and to get some support, I think that would be really helpful. Um, it can be really hard to go on this journey. It's really difficult to start to set boundaries. There's a certain amount of loneliness as you sort of readjust and recalibrate to asking people to, or demanding people treat you the way that you deserve to be treated. I'm just, just wanting, I guess, to leave you with like some thoughts that like you can re-narrate the relationships that you have to these painful experiences. You can re-narrate your relationship to your father and to what it feels like for you to interact with masculinity and it's also it's lonely and painful and frustrating but getting really clear on like what are things that I'm willing to accept and what are things that I absolutely will not accept anymore um, can just feel really good even though it, the process of getting there can be really painful and challenging okay that's actually it thank you to our sponsors you know who you are <laughs> Wait, who? Because <laughs> we, we don't have them. 
But do you want to be? <laughs>